Chapter Seven of the Sturdy Oak. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amanda Friday. The Sturdy Oak, Chapter Seven, by Anne O'Hagan. Mr. Benjamin Doolittle by profession Whitewater's leading furniture dealer and funeral director, and by the accident of political fortune, the manager of Mr. George Remington's campaign, sat in his candidate's private office, and from time to time restrained himself from hasty speech by the diplomatic and dexterous use of a quid of tobacco. He found it difficult to preserve his philosophy in the face of George Remington's agitation over the woman's suffrage issue. "'It's the last time,' he had frequently informed his political cronies since the opening of the campaign, that I'll wet nurse, a new-fledged candidate. They've got at least to have their milk teeth through if they want Benjamin Doolittle after this. To George, itchingly aware, through all his rasped nerves, of Mrs. Harrington's letter in that morning sentinel asking him to refute, if he could, an abominable half-column of statistics in regard to legislation in the women's suffrage states, the furniture dealer was drawling pacifically. Now, George, you made a mistake in letting the women get your goat. Don't pay no attention to them. Of course their game's fair enough. I will say that you gave them their opening, stood yourself for a target with that statement of yours. Howsomever, you ain't obligated to keep on acting as the niggerhead in the shooting gallery. Let em write, let em ask questions in the papers, let em heckle you on the stump. All that you've got to say is that you've expressed your personal convictions already, and that you've stood by those convictions in your private life and that as you ain't up for legislator, the question doesn't really concern your candidacy, and that, as you're running for district attorney, you will, with their kind permission, proceed to the subjects that do concern you there, the condition of the court calendar of Whitewater County, the prosecution of the racetrack gamblers out at Erie Oval, and so forth and so forth. You laid yourself open, George, but you ain't obligated in law or equity to keep on presenting yourself bare chest for their outrageous slings and arrows. "'Of course, what you say about their total irrelevancy is quite true,' said George, making the concession so that it had all the belligerency of a challenge. "'But, of course, I would never have consented to run for office at the price of muzzling my convictions.' Mr. Doolittle wearily agreed that that was more than could be expected from any candidate of the high moral worth of George Remington. Then he went over a list of places throughout the county where George was to speak during the next week and intimated dolefully that the committee could use a little more money, if it had it. He expressed it thus. A few more contributions wouldn't put any strain to speak of on our pants pockets. Anything more to be got out of old Martin Jaffrey? Don't he realize that blood's thicker than water? I'll speak to him, growled George. He hated Mr. Benjamin Doolittle's colloquialisms, though once he had declared them amusing, racy, of the soil, and had rebuked Genevieve's fastidious criticisms of them, on an occasion when she had interpreted her role of helpmeet to include that of hostess to Mr. and Mrs. Doolittle. Oh, not in her own home, of course. At luncheon, at the country club. Well, I guess that's about all for today. Mr. Doolittle brought the conference to a close, hoisting himself by links from his chair. It takes three thousand dollars every time you circularize the constituency, you know. He lounged toward the window, and looked out again upon the pleasant, mellow scene around Fountain Square and with the look his affectation of bucolic calm dropped from him. He turned abruptly. "'What's that going on at McMonagall's corner?' he demanded sharply. "'I don't know, I'm sure,' 
said George, with indifference, still bent upon teaching his manager that he was a free and independent citizen, in leading strings to no man. "'It's been vacant since the fire in March, when Petrosini's fish market, and Miss Letterblair's hats to—' He had reached the window himself by this time, and the sentence was destined to remain forever unfinished. From the low, old-fashioned brick building on the northeast corner of Fountain Square, whose boarded eyes had stared blindly across toward the glittering orbs of its towering neighbor, the Jaffrey Building, for six months. A series of great placards flared. Planks had been removed from the windows, plate glass restored, and behind it he read in damnable irritation, Some questions for candidate Remington. A foot high, an inch broad, black as Erebus, the letters shouted at him against an orange background. Every window of the second story contained a placard. On the first story, in the show window where Petrosini had been wont to ravish Epicurean eyes by shad and red snapper, perch and trout, cunningly embedded in ice blocks upon a marble slab, in that window, framed now in the hated orange and black, stood a woman. She was turning backward, for the benefit of onlookers who pressed close to the glass, the leaves of a mammoth pad resting upon an easel. From their point of vantage in the second story of the Jaffrey building, the candidate and his manager could see that each sheet bore that horrid headline, Questions for Candidate Remington. The whole population of Whitewater, it seemed to George, was crowded about that corner. "'I'll be back in a minute,' said Benji Doolittle, disappearing through the private office door with the black tails of his coat achieving a true horizontal behind him. As statesman and as undertaker, Mr. Doolittle never swerved from the garment which keeps green the memory of the late Prince Consort. As the door opened, the much-tried George Remington had a glimpse of that pleasing industrial unit, Betty Sheridan, searching through the file for the copy of the letter to the Communipaw Steelworks, which he had recently demanded to see. He pressed the buzzer imperiously, and Betty responded with duteous haste. He pointed through the window to the crowd in front of McMonagall's block. Perhaps, he said with what seemed to him Spartan self-restraint, you can explain the meaning of that scene. Betty looked out with an air of intelligent interest. "'Oh, yes,' she said vivaciously. "'I think I can. It's a voiceless speech.' "'A voiceless—' George's own face was a voiceless speech as he repeated two syllables of his stenographer's explanation. "'Yes. Don't you know about voiceless speeches? It's antiquated to try to run any sort of a campaign without them nowadays.' "'Perhaps you also know who that female—again George's power of utterance failed him.' Betty came closer to the window and peered out. "'It's Frances Harrington who's turning the leaves now,' she said amiably. "'I know her by that ducky toque. "'Frances Harrington? "'What Harvey Harrington is thinking of to allow—' "'George's emotion constrained him to broken utterance. "'And we're dining there tonight. "'She has no sense of the decencies, the—the—the the hospitality of existence. "'We won't go. "'I'll telephone Genevieve.' "'Fie-fie, Georgie,' observed Betty. Why be personal over a mere detail of a political campaign? But before George could tell her why his indignation against his prospective hostess was impersonal and unemotional, the long figure of Mr. Doolittle again projected itself upon the scene. Betty effaced herself, gliding from the inner office, and George turned a look of inquiry upon his manager. Well? The monosyllable had all the force of profanity. Well, the women, dern them, have brought suffrage into your campaign. How? How? They've got a list of every blamed law on the statute books relating to women and children. And they're asking on that sheet of leaves over there if you mean to proceed against all who are breaking those laws here in Whitewater County, and right opposite your own office. 
It's, it's damn smart. You ought to have got that Harrington woman on your committee. It's indelicate, unwomanly, indecent. It shows into what unsexed degradation politics will drag woman. But I'm relieved that that's all they're asking. Of course, I shall enforce the law for the protection of every class in our community with all the power of the— Oh, shucks, there's nobody here but me. You needn't unfurl old glory, counseled Mr. Doolittle, a trifle impatiently. They're asking real questions, not blowing off hot air. Oh, I say, who owns McMonagall's block since the old man died? We'll have the owner stop this circus. That's the first thing to do. I'll telephone Alan. He'll know. Alan's office was very obliging, and would report on the ownership on McMonagall's block in ten minutes. Mr. Doolittle employed the interval in repeating to George some of the questions for candidate Remington, illegible from George's desk. You believe that women's place is in the home. Will you enforce the law against women's night work in the factories? Over nine hundred women of Whitewater County are doing night work in the munition plants of Airport, Whitewater, and Andegonk. What do you mean to do about it? You desire to conserve the threatened flower of womanhood. A critical listener would have caught a note of ribald scorn in Mr. Doolittle's drawl as he quoted from his candidate's statement, via the voiceless speech placards. To conserve the threatened flower of womanhood, the grape canneries of Omega and Onocrum townships are employing children of five and six years in defiance of the child labor law of this state. Are you going to proceed against them? Woman is man's rarest heritage. Do you think man ought to burn her alive? Remember the Livingston Loomis Lad Collar Factory fire? Fourteen women killed, forty-eight maimed. And how many of the factories in Whitewater, in which women work, are the fire laws obeyed? Do you mean to enforce them? The telephone interrupted Mr. Doolittle's hateful litany. Allen's bright young man begged to report that McMonagall's block was held in fee simple by the widow of the late Michael McMonagall. Mr. Doolittle juggled the leaves of the telephone directory with the dazzling swiftness of a Japanese ball-thrower, and in a few seconds he was speaking to the relict of the late Michael. George watched him with fevered eyes, listened with fevered ears. The conversation, it was easy to gather, did not proceed as Mr. Doolittle wished. Oh, an entire charge. E. Elliot. Oh, in sympathy yourself. Oh, come now, Mrs. McMonagall. But Mrs. McMonagall did not come now. The campaign manager frowned as he replaced the receiver. Widow owns the place. That Elliot woman is the agent. The suffrage gang has the owner's permission to use the building from now on to election. She says she's in sympathy. Well, we'll have to think of something. It's easy enough, declared George. I'll simply have a set of posters printed answering their questions, and we'll engage sandwich men to carry them in front of McMonagall's windows. Certainly I mean to enforce the law. I'll give the order to the Sentinel Press now for the answers. Definite, dignified answers. See here, George. Mr. Doolittle interrupted him with unusual weightiness of manner. It's too far along in the campaign for you to go flying off on your own. You've got to consult your managers. This is your first campaign. It's my thirty-first. You've got to take advice. I will not be muzzled. Shucks, who wants to muzzle anybody? But you can't say everything that's inside of you, can you? There's got to be some choosing. We've got to help you choose. The silly questions the women are displaying over there, you can't answer them in a word or in two words. The city is having a boom. Every valve factory in the valley, every needle and pin factory, is making munitions today. Valves and needles and pins all gone by the board for the time being. Money's never been so plenty in Whitewater County. And the city is feeling the benefits of it. 
People are buying things. Clothes, flour, furniture, victrolas, automobiles, rum. There ain't a merchant of any description in this county, but his business is booming on account of the work in the factories. You can't antagonize the whole population of the place. Why, I dare say some of your own money, and Mrs. Remington's, is earning three times what it was two years ago. The First National Bank has just declared a 15% dividend, and Martin Jaffrey owns 54% of the stock. You don't want to put brakes on prosperity. It ain't decent citizenship to try it. It ain't neighborly. Think of the lean years we've known. You can't do it. This war won't last forever. Mr. Doolittle's voice was tinged with regret. And it will be time enough to go in for playing the deuce with business when business gets slack again. That's the time for reforms, George, when things are dull. George was silent, the very presentiment of a sorely harassed young man. He had not, even in a year when blamelessness rather than experience was his party's supreme need in a candidate, become its banner-bearer without possessing certain political apperceptions. He knew, as Benji Doolittle spoke, that Benji spoke the truth. Whitewater City and County would never elect a man who had too convincingly promised to interfere with the prosperity of the city and county. "'Better stick to the gambling out at Erie Oval, George,' counseled the campaign manager. They're mostly New Yorkers that are interested in that, anyway. I'll not reply without due consideration and, uh, notice. George sullenly acceded to his manager and to necessity. But he hated both Doolittle and necessity at the moment. That sunbright vision of himself which so splendidly and sustainingly companioned him, which spoke in his most sonorous periods, which so completely and satisfyingly commanded the reverence of Genevieve, that George Remington, of his brave imaginings, would not thus have answered Benjamin Doolittle. Through the silence following the furniture man's departure, Betty, at the typewriter, clicked upon Georgie's ears. An evil impulse assailed him. Impolitic, too, as he realized. Impolitic, but irresistible. It was the easiest way in which candidate Remington, heckled by suffragists, overridden by his campaign committee, mortifyingly tormented by a feeling of inadequacy, could re-establish himself in his own esteem as a man of prompt and righteous decisions. He might not be able to run his campaign to suit himself, but by Jove his office was his own. He went into Betty's quarters and suggested to her that a due sense of the eternal fitness of things would cause her to offer him her resignation, which his own sense of the eternal fitness of things would lead him at once to accept. It seemed, he said, highly indecorous of her to remain in the employ of Remington and Evans the while she was busily engaged in trying to thwart the ambitions of the senior partner. He marveled that woman's boasted sensitiveness had not already led her to perceive this for herself. For a second Betty seemed startled, even hurt. She colored deeply and her eyes darkened. Then the flush of surprise and the wounded feeling died. She looked at him blankly and asked how soon it would be possible for him to replace her. She would leave as soon as he desired. In her bearing, so much quieter than usual, in the look in her face, George read a whole volume. He read that up to this time, Betty had regarded her presence in the ranks of his political enemies as she would have regarded being opposed to him in a tennis match. He read that he, with that biting little speech which he already wished unspoken, had given her a sudden sinister illumination upon the relations of working women to their employers. He read the question in the back of her mind. Suppose, so it ran in his constructive fancy, that instead of being a prosperous, protected young woman, playing the wage-earner, more or less as Marie Antoinette had played the milkmaid, she had been Mamie Riley across the hall, whose work was bitter earnest, whose earnings were not pin-money, 
but bread and meat and brother's schooling and mother's health. Would George still have made the stifling of her views the price of her position? And if George, George, the kind, friendly, clean-minded man, would drive that bargain, what bargain might not other men, less gentle, less noble, drive? All this George's unhappily sensitized conscience read into Betty Sheridan's look, even as the imp who urged him on bade him tell her that she could leave at her own convenience, at once if she pleased. The supply of stenographers in Whitewater was adequately at demand. He rather wished that Penny Evans would come in. Penny would doubtless take a high hand with him concerning the episode, and there was nothing which George Remington would have welcomed like an antagonist of his own size and sex. But Penny did not appear, and the afternoon passed draggingly for the candidate for the district attorneyship. He tried to busy himself with the affairs of his clients, but even when he could keep away from his windows, he was aware of the crowds in front of McMonagall's block, of Frances Harrington, her ducky toque, and her infernal voiceless speech. And when, for a second, he was able to forget these, he heard from the outer office the unmistakable sounds of a desk being permanently cleared of its present incumbent's belongings. After a while, Betty bade him a too courteous good-bye, still with that abominable new air of gravely readjusting her old impressions of him. And then there was nothing to do but to go home and make ready for dinner at the Harrington's, unless he could induce Genevieve to have an opportune headache. Of course Betty had been right. Not upon his masculine shoulders should there be laid the absurd burden of political chagrin strong enough to break a social engagement. Genevieve was in her room. The library was given over to Alice Brewster Smith, cousin Emmeline Brand, two rusty callers, and the tea-things. Before the drawing-room fire, Hannah slept in Maltese proprietorship. George longed with passion to kick the cat. Genevieve, as he saw through the open door, sat by the window. She had, it appeared, but recently come in. She still wore her hat and coat. She had not even drawn off her gloves. And seeing her thus, absorbed in some problem, George's sense of his wrongs grew greater. He had, he told himself, hurried home out of the jar and fret of a man's day to find balm, to feel the cool fingers of peace pressed upon hot eyelids, to drink strengthening draughts of refreshment from his wife's unquestioning belief, from the completeness of her absorption in him. And here she sat, thinking of something else. Genevieve arose, a little startled as he snapped on the lights, and grunted out something which optimism might translate into an affectionate husbandly greeting. She came dutifully forward and raised her face, still exquisite and cool from the outer air, for her lord's homecoming kiss. That resolved itself into a slovenly peck. "'Been out?' asked George unnecessarily. He tried to quell the unreasonable inclination to find her lacking in wifely devotion because she had been out. "'Yes, there was a meeting at the Woman's Forum this afternoon.' she answered. She was unpinning her hat before the pier-glass, and in it he could see the reflection of her eyes turned upon his image with a questioning look. The lady seemed to be having a busy day of it. He struggled, not quite successfully, to be facetious over the pretty, negligible activities of his wife's sex. What mighty theme engaged your attention? That Miss Elliot, the real estate woman, you know, George stiffened into an attitude of close attention, spoke about the conditions under which women are working in the mills in this city and in the rest of the county genevieve averted her mirrored eyes from his mirrored face she moved toward her dressing-table oh she did and is the woman's forum going to come to grips with the industrial monster and bring in the millennium by the first of the year but george was painfully aware that light banter which fails to be convincingly light is but a snarl 
Genevieve colored slightly as she studied the condition of a pair of long white gloves which she had taken from a drawer. "'Of course the woman's form is only for discussion,' she said mildly. "'It doesn't initiate any action.' Then she raised her eyes to his face, and George felt his universe reel about him. For his wife's beautiful eyes were turned upon him, not in limpid adoration, not in perfect acceptance of all his views, unheard, unweighed, but with a question in their blue depths. The horrid clairvoyance which harassment and self-distrust had given him that afternoon enabled him, he thought, to translate that look. The Elliot woman, in her speech before the woman's forum, had doubtless placed the responsibility for the continuation of those factory conditions upon the district attorney's office, had doubtless repeated those damn fool impractical questions which the suffragists were displaying in McMonagall's windows. And Genevieve was asking them in her mind. Genevieve was questioning him, his motives, his standards, his intentions. Genevieve was not intellectually a charming mechanical doll who would always answer yes and no as he pressed the strings and maintain a comfortable vacuity when he was not at hand to perform the kindly act. Genevieve was thinking on her own account. What, he wondered angrily as he dressed, for he could not bring himself to ask her aid in escaping the Harringtons, and indeed was suddenly bulky at the thought of the intimacies of a domestic evening. What was she thinking? She was not such an imbecile as to be unaware how large a share of her comfortable fortune was invested in the local industry. Why, her father had been head of the Livingston Loomis Lad Collar Company when that dreadful fire! And she certainly knew that his uncle, Martin Jaffrey, was the chief stockholder in the Jaffrey Bradshaw Company. What was the question in Genevieve's eyes? Was she asking if he were the knight of those women who worked and sweated and burned, or of her and the comfortable women of her class, of Alice Brewster Smith with her little cottages, of Cousin Emmeline with her little stocks, of masquerading Betty Sheridan, whose sortie of independence was from the safe vantage-grounds of entrenched privilege. And all that evening, as he watched his wife across the crystal and the roses of the Harrington table, trying to interpret the question that had been in her eyes, trying to interpret her careful silence, he realized what every husband sooner or later awakes to realize, that he had married a stranger. He did not know her. He did not know what ambitions, what aspirations apart from him, ruled the spirit behind that charming surface of flesh. Of course she was good, of course she was tender, of course she was high-minded. But how wide enveloping was the cloak of her goodness! How far did her tenderness reach out? Was her high-mindedness of the practical or impractical variety? From time to time he caught her eyes and turn upon him, with that curious little look of re-examination in their depths. She could look at him like that! She could look at him as though appraisals were possible from a wife to a husband! They avoided industrial Whitewater County as a topic when they left the Harringtons. They talked with great animation and interest of the people at the party. Arrived at home, George, pleading press of work, went down into the library while Genevieve went to bed. Carefully they postponed the moment of making articulate all that, remaining unspoken, might be ignored. It was one o'clock, and he had not moved a paper for an hour when the library door opened. Genevieve stood there. She had sometimes come before when he had worked at night, to chide him for neglecting sleep, to bring bouillon or chocolate, but to-night she did neither. She did not come far into the room, but standing near the door, and looking at him with a new expression, patient, tender, the everlasting eternal look, she said, I couldn't sleep either. I came down to say something, George. Don't interrupt me. 
for he was coming toward her with sounds of affectionate protest at her being out of bed. Don't speak. I want to say, whatever you do, whatever you decide, now, always, I love you. Even if I don't agree, I love you. She turned and went swiftly away. George stood looking at the place where she had stood, the strange new Genevieve, who, promising to love, reserved the right to judge. End of chapter 7 Recording by Amanda Friday